0: What you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. It'll determine your eternal state. It'll direct for you how you should live, not only in all the years of your life, but even in every minute. We've been studying through the book of Hebrews for a while now as a church. And one thing we have seen, and some things we will eventually see by the time we've gotten to the end, is that Jesus must be your only true prophet. He must be your only high priest, and he must be your only ultimate king. He is the only one with unlimited authority. In fact, in Matthew 28, verse 18, right before Jesus is is about to ascend into heaven, he's died, he's resurrected, he's ready to ascend, and he tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. No one else can say that. Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! This means that our sin is far more than just wronging our fellow man. It is high treason against our God. Christians, when we proclaim the gospel and we implore another person to surrender their life to Christ, we are not asking a person to give to Jesus something that does not already belong to him. We are pleading for that person to submit to Jesus because their life is already his. And if you're hearing this and you're not a believer, you need to know Jesus has all right authority over you and over everything that you ever will do. He has authority. And it is our charge to submit ourselves under what is duly His. We belong to Him. Today we will begin this sermon series in Romans 13. I think this is a very important sermon series right now. It's always been the responsibility of Christians to know the difference between truth and error. And we must run every category of life through the grid of God's Word. And in the categories of life where error abounds, our understanding of truth must be clear. Now, I strongly suspect that we are approaching a time in our nation where our understanding of God's design for government will be put to the test. Additionally, I strongly suspect... That we are already in a time where people all around us, including many Christians, have an anemic understanding of God's will on this subject. Simply put, they misunderstand what God said about government. And that misunderstanding may likely contribute to atrocities and injustices in our nation. I suspect that you know that that's not a stretch. It's not mere alarmism. This very Sunday, right now, thousands of churches in our nation will not be obeying God's explicit command to gather and worship because the government has counter-commanded that they don't gather and worship. Many more churches have had their worship hindered in various ways by imposing ever-increasing state mandates with no expiration date. They have seized power they do not intend to relinquish anytime soon. You need to know what the Bible says about government. This is not a time or a place for opinion. And this is why I'm starting in Romans 13. Because I've heard this passage misused and abused by Christians more in the past six months than throughout every year of my life combined. What I'm going to argue from this passage is that this text not only tells us citizens how to relate to government... But it also instructs state government as to how it should relate to its citizens. So we're going to read this text, and then I'm going to back up a few verses to set the context. We're going to look at familiar statements that we've seen here, and we're going to ask important questions about them as we go. And we're only going to get about four verses into Romans 13 today. I do not intend to answer all the questions you might have about government in this sermon. In fact, I fully expect that this may provoke more questions at first. But hopefully, by the end of this sermon series, we will have shed significant light on this subject. So I'm going to read Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, pray, and then go back in. Let's do that. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Father, this morning, I ask that you help us to not think about this text primarily as Americans, but as Christians who submit every area of our life to your will. Let us see this text as authoritative in our lives and how we ought to live and how the government ought to provide authority. God, we need your help with this to obliterate obstacles, to help us see clearly. Send your Holy Spirit. Help us understand that we may honor and love you more because of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, if you've been in the book of Romans ever before, you'll know this is a glorious treasure trove of gospel goodness. You want to explain the gospel to somebody, just read Romans out loud from chapters 1 through 8. But by the time we get to chapter 12, Paul is busy instructing believers how they ought to live in light of the gospel. And he gives a list of Christian virtues to which we should all aspire. And I'm going to jump right towards the end of that list to chapter 12, verses 18 and 19, because I think these verses are the setup for our text today. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. First, we see here that we are commanded to seek peace with others. That's what Christians are to do. We're to be the peace lovers, the peace seekers. Not always looking for a fight, but ones who desire to have peace. But the Bible does not imagine a world in which Christians are never wronged. Quite the contrary. In fact, on repeat throughout the New Testament, we are told that we will be the subjects of earthly scorn, of persecution, of hatred, And this passage expects that oftentimes our peace extended will not be reciprocated. It will not be returned. In fact, it may very well be met with outright hostility. So it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Why? Because you can't determine how another person will respond. So what if you offer peace and they offer wrath or hostility? What do you do then? Well, that's what comes in the next verse. We are not to respond to those hostilities with vengeance. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. It is the most natural thing in the world, isn't it, to return evil for evil? You see two little children playing together, and one pushes the other. The likely response is to watch kid two push kid one. That's why mommy has long coined the phrase, two two wrongs don't make a right. But we are supposed to resist that purely fleshly response. We are not to lash out. Why? We're asking questions about familiar texts. Why is it that we are not to lash out? Is it because God doesn't care about justice? Is it because justice does not matter? No. It is because God is the one who has promised to bring about justice. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. If there is a wrong, God says, I will deal with it. It's his responsibility. It is not primarily ours. God has made certain that justice will prevail. He will ensure that every wrong is appropriately dealt with. And how will he do this? Well, ultimately we know that in the end there will be a day of reckoning. A day that the Bible calls the day of the Lord. It is a day of judgment when God will judge all the wicked deeds of those whose names are not written in the book of life. And the sentencing shall commence and it shall be severe. So a big question comes to mind. Is that the only way God imagines for us to have justice? In other words, does this mean that there is no way in which a Christian can hope for justice in this life? If someone hurts an innocent person, is there no right way for that person to be punished here and now? If a Christian has a family member who is a victim of robbery or abuse or even murder, is Paul saying that there is no possible God-honoring recourse to that kind of crime? Let it go. In the end, God will deal with it. No. His answer to this is given in the next chapter. Romans 13, our text today. This is our setup. God has graciously provided for us institutions, spheres of governance to deal with wickedness in this life. Jesus has delegated authority to these institutions in order to manage, to supervise, to adjudicate justice on this earth. And those three spheres are the state, the church, and the family. These are the three earthly institutions ordained by God. Our passage today deals directly with Romans, chapter, Romans 13, directly with the civil sphere, the state. But in order for this to be most helpful for you, you need to understand some things about these spheres of government and how they relate to one another. So a quick three minutes just to explain this. This is going to be a setup for much of the rest of our sermon series. The Bible teaches that we have the state, the civil sphere, the church, the ecclesiastical sphere, and the family, or the household sphere. These spheres are not mere images of each other. So, So they're not equivalent in every possible way. But they do share some basic elements in common, and I'm going to give you just a few examples for clarity. First and foremost, each sphere has been ordained by God to have real authority. This authority is legitimate. It is not culturally contrived. The spheres are not human inventions, nor are they merely social constructs. They are a gift from God to us, and they are intended for our benefit. And in each sphere, Jesus is the supreme leader. He is our highest authority in each of the spheres of earthly government. There is no atom of these spheres that is not under the absolute and unlimited authority of Jesus over creation. But he has delegated genuine authority to officers within each sphere. In other words, the Bible does not support an anarchist view of government, that there is God and each of us, and each one of us can do what is right in our own eyes. No. There is God, there are these institutions... And us, who are a part of these institutions, each sphere has officers who have been granted authority in that respective sphere. So so let's consider for a moment the family. In the family, we have the father, the husband. Ephesians 5 and 6 tells us that the wife and the children are to submit to the husband, the father, as the leader in authority. In the church we have a plurality of pastors, elders. Hebrews 13 says that we are to obey and submit to the authorities within the church who keep watch over our souls as one who are to to give an account. And in the civil sphere, we have emperors, governors, kings. Romans 13 tells us this. That's what we're reading today. Now, interesting note. The way that the Bible talks about Jesus Think about the way the Bible talks about Jesus. The Bible tells that Jesus is our bridegroom. That's the highest authority in the family. That Jesus is the chief shepherd, that's senior pastor. The highest authority in the church. And that Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. Highest authority in the state. The Bible makes it clear that no matter how we talk about these things, the most supreme authority in every sphere is Jesus. And he delegates genuine authority to officers within the spheres. Each of these spheres has jurisdictions. That's boundaries, that's limitations. So consider again the family. Each family is primarily responsible for those within that household. So a father will be held accountable by God to discipline his children and his household, not the children of his neighbor two blocks over, right? The church, the church is responsible for members of that local church. So the elders of this church have a responsibility for you in a way that we don't have For members of the local church on the other side of town. The state is responsible for its own citizens and its territorial boundaries. For example, you and I are not right now under Canadian law. Why? Because we're not in Canada and we're not Canadian citizens. But the limits for each authority are not merely territorial. It's not just based on location or citizenship. The Bible also describes other limits on authority in each sphere. Perhaps the clearest way to see this is to consider the maximum allowable punishments to be doled out in each sphere. So, again, start with the the family, the limit on how the sphere may exert authority. In the family, what is the maximum allowable punishment by the Bible that a father may execute in his household? The rod of discipline. That's how. Can a father kill his child? No, that's beyond the bounds of his authority. He's given the rod of discipline. How about the church? Can the church beat a member if he or she does not comply? Can the church put to death a member who does not do what they want? No, the church has a limit on its maximum penalty, and that limit is excommunication. For the state, the highest conceivable penalty is capital punishment. The death penalty. The state has been given the sword to deal with the things that are not within the authority of the family or the church. Now, each of these fears necessarily relates to the others. You see why? See, they overlap in this. This is a Venn diagram where the circles overlap. It's not like a little pie chart where, where, where there's, there's no possible way where the lanes overlap. Of course, they overlap. Not only is it not practically feasible for them to be entirely isolated, but God's word expects that they certainly will overlap. They will intersect at various points. Each of us are intended by God to be a part of a state, a part of a church, and a part of a family. And to be under right authority in each of those spheres. So for example, imagine a young man turns 16, and he gets his driver's license. And he he gets to go out onto the open road. Whose authority is he under? The state or his parents? Yes, both. The state says, do not go over this speed limit. He must obey. The parents say, "Well, you can drive, we don't yet feel comfortable with you going on the highway. Stay on local roads. And he must obey. Those spheres of authority certainly overlap. And it is those places where we tend to have the most confusion. It is true that throughout history, different groups of people have emphasized one of these spheres over the others. And much more could be said about this. I I had so much on this, but I think that we have enough to get started with as we move ahead. Our text today deals with civil sphere of government, the state. And it relates to the church and the family. Follow me with with me, if you will, in Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So here's our starting point. Right out of the gate, we are commanded to be subject to the governing authorities. That is to be in submission to. The governing authorities. Here's our starting point. This is our eager first reaction. And why should we be in submission? Because God has established this state. See? For there is no authority except from God. There is no authority except from God. He's given real authority to our governing leaders. And it is on the basis of these two things that we are to be subject to the governing authority and he has given us right authority that we get the next verse. If you resist God-honoring authority, you are ultimately resisting God and you will find yourself under God's judgment. God's judgment. Simply put, to resist right authority is sin. Submission is a virtue submission is a good wonderful and honorable thing there is no one that exists that is not under authority there is no one who exists that is not intended to be in submission in various spheres throughout his or her life as christians we are to be a people in submission to god and therefore we are to submit to the authority that he has delegated to our government and we see examples of this in scripture all over the place but here's just one clear one for you. The Apostle Paul in the book of Acts was arrested on false charges. They said he was speaking against the temple, that he brought in somebody who was, it was illegal for a Greek to enter the temple. Neither of those things were true. But they arrested him anyway. And he was wrongfully imprisoned for more than two years before we get to this point in Acts chapter 25, where he's brought before the governor Festus. This is what Paul argues in his defense. If you have your Bibles, Acts 25, I'm going to read verses 8 and 11. I'll read it out loud. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Caesar. So Paul does not argue that the civil governors do not have genuine authority because he knows that they do, in fact, have the right to punish, even the right to execute capital punishment for certain crimes. His argument is that he has not committed any of those crimes. You you can't kill me because I haven't done anything worthy of the death penalty. That's why. If I had done something worthy of the death penalty, I should submit to that. Because you have that right authority. Paul acknowledges that the state has this real authority, and that he must submit to them as a law-abiding citizen. You and I are not to break the laws of our government, or we will face the consequences. This is a direct command to Christians: how we relate to the state. Be eager to submit. Be eager to comply. But Paul is about to switch gears in the very next verse in our Romans chapter. Romans 13, verse 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct. I want you to think about that statement with me. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct. Do you notice that Paul has switched gears from telling us what we should do to defining for us what a governor is, a ruler is. So here's the question for you. Which ruler does Paul have in mind? Rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Which rulers? Is Paul imagining Herod the Great? Who murdered a city full of baby boys in an attempt to destroy Jesus? Was that a terror to good conduct? Was Paul imagining Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist on a whim from a young girl, even though Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest man born a woman? Was Herod Antipas a terror to good conduct? Did Paul imagine Pilate? Paul's companion Luke says that he killed some Galileans and mixed their blood with unclean pigs. This same Pilate ordered his soldiers to crucify the only innocent human who's ever lived, Jesus. Was that a terror to good or to bad? Was Paul imagining Caligula, who was a ruler during his lifetime? The same Caligula who claimed to be divine, he was the Roman emperor, he killed on a whim. On one occasion, it's said that because he didn't have enough prisoners to kill in the Colosseum, or in a death sentence, he literally grabbed people out of the crowd to kill them because somebody needed to die. He sold his own sisters as prostitutes. He was so crazy, he ordered for his horse to be made a priest. Was Caligula a terror to good conduct? How about Nero? The Roman emperor who's in authority at the time that Paul is writing this letter. The same Nero who captured Christians and lit their bodies on fire to light as Roman candles during his festivities. The same Nero who had a 10-year-old boy castrated so he could marry him and refer to him as his wife. The same Nero who would go on, and is almost certainly the one, who issues the order to execute the apostle Paul. When Nero did this, was he carrying out God's wrath on Paul because of his wrongdoing? Was Nero operating as the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer? No. Paul certainly knows of many rulers who are a terror to good conduct. So how can he say this? This is a critical point, Christians. This is a critical point. You have got to see this. Romans 13 is not intended to be a description of what earthly government actually is, but a prescription for what it is designed to be. Don't get... Tripped up over the language here. When I preach wedding sermons, I do a very similar thing at the language here. I tell the bride and groom what the Bible says a husband and a wife are. I say a husband is one who loves his wife, lays his life down for his wife, sacrifices for her. He protects her. He provides for her. He cares for her. Do I say that because I don't imagine that anyone has done wrong? Romans 13 should be seen as the marching orders for a public official. In other words, if you were to be appointed to a ruling position in civil authority, you should be, this should be one of the very first places you go. Memorize this passage. This is your responsibility under God. So let's consider what this passage does say that a ruler ought to be. First, not a terror to good conduct. A ruler ought not punish what God calls good. A governor should never tell a Christian to not proclaim the gospel, to not proclaim the whole word of God. A ruler is not to be a terror to good conduct, but to bad. He should be a terror phobos. is literally the word we get phobia from. A terror to bad conduct. He is to punish evil. He is to punish wrongdoing. The ruler under the authority of God, operating as he should, should be the kind of ruler that when somebody goes to commit a heinous act, that person should be afraid of what the ruler would do if he was captured. The ruler should punish abortionists for killing innocent babies. Proverbs 21.15 says that when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to the evildoers. Same terror language. Wicked people should fear their government. What else? He's God's servant. You know what that word is there, servant? Deacon. That's the exact same word that we use for the office in the church of deacon. A servant of God. He is to serve us by serving God, not by denying that God exists or pretending as though he doesn't or pretending as though he could have authority over God, but by serving God, serving us. He is to be the bearer of the sword, the bearer of the sword. He is to approve of right doing, approve of good. And in bearing the sword, that means that he has the real authority, and the real authority to execute. You and I may not kill somebody who wrongs us. The governor has been given that right. He is to punish evil with appropriate severity. He is not to take a serial rapist, slap him on the wrist, and then let him go on the street again to find another victim. That is not what an authority ought to do. The Apostle Peter provides what is sort of a parallel teaching to this one. In First Peter chapter 2, it's oftentimes referenced at the same times Romans 13 is, for good reason, because it is talking very much about the same thing. Let me go to what Peter says there in First Peter 2, 13 through 14. You can read this with me. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. See why this sounds parallel? Same, same kind of teaching. And first, you'll notice here, That Peter speaks approvingly of levels of government. That's fully approved. One will be higher than the other. They have to delegate authority down within their respective sphere in order to manage the broad number of issues they have to deal with. But perhaps even more helpfully, Peter provides a clear, concise summary of what the state has the authority and responsibility to do. To punish evil and praise good. That's what he's been sent to do. Or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. If you were looking for a one-liner in the Bible to summarize what a governor is commanded by God to do, this would be it. What should the governor do? Punish evil and praise good. A more modern way to say this is to serve and protect. And that's exactly what this does. Implicit in this is the restraint of evil. It's simply by the fact that punishment is waiting, a person is restrained. I don't want to do that. I could get killed. It's a preemptive punishment when a person is restrained. And the protection of good is also implied in the praise of those to do good. It's no praise to the good when you allow them to be victimized when you can stop it. This specifies not only the areas of responsibility, but also the limits on what a government may or may not do. This is the first place where, in my view of this, especially in modern days, Christians make major errors when they think about state authority. It is true that the state has a wider jurisdiction and a more severe penalty. This is why so many people quickly go, well, the the state must be in charge of almost everything because it seems so much bigger. And it is bigger. Inside of one state government... There may be a thousand churches and a million families, right? You get the idea? So the jurisdiction, territorially, is much larger than that of an individual family or of a church. Additionally, the punishment that they are allowed to bear, the sword, capital punishment, is by far the most severe. Yes, those things are given to the government by God. But it is not true to say that the state has been granted authority over areas of your life not granted by God in Scripture. Play this out in one of the other spheres with me. Consider the church. What authority do your pastors have over you in the church? I'll give you a quick list. To organize and administrate the activities of worship according to God's word. To settle disputes between brothers. To instruct the church in godliness both by example and teaching. To guard the flock from wolves. Admonish Help and encourage the members of the church and to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's what a pastor or an elder is supposed to do. But what if your pastors commanded you to do something else? What if I was to command something arbitrary for members of the church? Something like, wear blue on Sundays because I like blue. And let's say it was something arbitrary in that it was not condemned by Scripture. There's no command that says not to wear blue. I can't find a single verse that says not to wear that. Are you obligated to obey? Absolutely not. That is outside of the purview of the authority of church officials. I have no authority To impose on you anything that the Bible does not prescribe. Either explicitly or necessarily inferred. Nor does the state have the authority to do that either. The state is to punish or restrain evil. And the state is to praise or protect good. And there's another critical point to be made here. At no point, either here or anywhere else in sacred scripture, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, any of the Old or New Testament, can you find one place that God delegates to earthly authorities the right to determine what is good and what is evil. God alone determines what is right and wrong, and it is the job of the king to enforce that. When we vote to elect an American president or a governor or a sheriff, we should be choosing who to elect based upon who we think will most closely align with what God has established. That's how we ought to vote. We are not looking for the best leader. We're actually looking for the best follower of God, the one who will most closely align with what he has commanded. This is why when Peter and the apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel in Acts chapter five, and the religious leaders in right authority, genuine authority, legitimate authority, demanded that they stop preaching, there was just one problem. That declaration was irrelevant because they have no authority to determine what is right and wrong. This is why Peter would speak up with the apostles and say, we must obey God rather than men. The Bible expects that men are going to make up all kinds of laws, all kinds of rules, all kinds of things that are not within their purview, not within their authority. And when that happens, we must obey God rather than men. So when God commands Christians to gather and worship, and the state commands Christians to not gather and worship, our reply quite simply is, We must obey God rather than men. And even if they hold up the sword, look, look, we have the sword. God gave us this sword. Our reply is to be, put it back. That's not what it's for. And that need not be said in a spirit of rebellion, but in submission to what God has said. Listen carefully to this here, okay? Because I'm going to unpack this statement much more in the next several weeks, but I want you to hear this now. The state has absolutely no God given authority to intervene in right Christian worship. Absolutely no authority by God to intervene in right Christian worship. Zero. It's not their lane. They may not tell us what to wear in worship. They may not tell us what songs we should sing or how many. They may not prescribe which books of the Bible we will or will not preach out of. They may not tell us how long our services may be. They may not tell you how many people can gather together and worship and break bread together and pray together. They have no authority in right Christian worship. Zero You cannot find a single verse in all of sacred scripture where God approves of civil authorities intervening in right worship. Zero. None. And Christians in America have enjoyed peace with government, a general peace with government for so many centuries now that we have forgotten the limits of government, You cannot twist Romans 13 or 1 Peter 2 to say that. You cannot do it. It is prescribed what government may and may not do. They may punish evil. Protect good. The state may not determine what is right and wrong. And the state may not go beyond the jurisdiction that they have been given. They have been commanded by God to uphold his standards by punishing what he calls evil and praising what he calls good. I want you to consider for a moment what the Bible says about the person who mixes this up. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Proverbs 17, 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 24, verses 24 and 25. Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight and a good blessing will come upon them. Romans 13 comes after Romans 1. I want to read for you what happens in Romans 1 when people choose to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And listen to this line right here. Because this applies to every king, every emperor, every governor, and every citizen who ever has and ever will exist. Listen carefully. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Paul is not commanding that we obey these things. The Bible doesn't give you that. And if we are to love and honor and respect to and eagerly submit to our government, we must do it in the right way. Because it is the responsibility of Christians to inform the government what the word says. And when our tacit approval or sometimes vocal approval of wicked things that the government does goes out to them, it is heard, well, apparently God is in approving of prov- 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 this. No. We have a prophetic responsibility to tell the world about truth and justice and righteousness and for us to s- submissively, in a desire to comply, to remind our government where their lane is and isn't. And what God says is right or is not. More than 50 million babies have been murdered by abortion in our nation since Roe v. Wade almost 40 years ago. Sexual perversion is literally paraded through the streets as virtuous. Literally paraded. Many of our government authorities are actively seeking to erase God out of classrooms, workplaces, and government. Every sphere. They're trying to dismantle God's teaching on men and women, becoming increasingly hostile to the gospel. But as believers, we must not be afraid. Our king is perfect in justice, in holiness, in righteousness. He will do what is right. And the day is coming when he will deal with all those who have refused to obey his commands. Brothers and sisters, you know that it is our charge to preach to the, to the unbelieving world the gospel of Jesus. And what are we to preach to them? Repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus, or there is hell. There is punishment coming, because all of us deserve punishment as sinners before God. We are traitors, treacherous fools, who sought to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator God. Turn from your sin and turn in faith to Jesus, who died on the cross for that sin, and raised from the dead. Showing his authority and power over even death itself. Ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of God, and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Submit yourself to him. Believe what he says. Follow him. If you haven't done that, you need to do that today. The day of your rebellion must be over. We need to cover lots of things in this series. I know we just barely scratched the surface, and there are many parts of what I brought up today that we just barely got into. I'm going to ask you to think like a Christian, a Bible lover, more than an American. That means that we don't rely on our rebellious, revolutionary nature As, as Americans. You can't tell me what to do. That's not the way we operate. We let the Bible tell us. There are many places that the government may tell us what to do that we don't like, but we also must not go on the other side. Well, but for years, we've just submitted whatever they say. We should just keep doing that. No, it's our job to proclaim all of the gospel, all of these things to the watching world without fear. Questions that we'll be covering soon. As as, as Americans, how does the Constitution play into this? Does it? When is it appropriate to disobey the state? How are we to relate to governors who have acted unlawfully, does there come a point in which unlawful behavior can actually make a legitimate authority delegitimized? Does the state have authority to enforce quarantine? That's the question we'll have to deal with. Does the state government have the right to go beyond typical jurisdictions when public health or safety is at risk? And does intent play in it all? All these are the things that I hope to help with as we move forward in this sermon series. And I hope that Romans 13 starts, even at the beginning of it, starts as just a basis to build on, that God has designed the lanes for our authority to operate and to see him as our ultimate authority. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we just kick this thing off, I pray that you can help us let your word guide us, all the words of scripture, that any wrong thinking that I have as a preacher or a Christian that all of my brothers and sisters here might have in their minds that will be challenged by your word, that we would submit to what it says. We will not bring our presumptions and our assumptions as authoritative into this conversation, but we will let your word tell us what to, what to do. God, help us to search all of this holy book to see what it is that you want for us. Help prepare us for a season that very well may be coming. Maybe not, Lord, but, but it looks like it's very likely that it's coming, that we're gonna have to really know how it is that we can most honor you in relation to the government. We need to know if it is right for us to disobey the government in order to meet in order to homeschool our kids in a certain way, in order to continue to proclaim truth on the streets, next to abortion clinics and temples and schools and wherever else we may find to share the gospel, Lord. Help us, Lord, trust in you, to submit to you. Teach us to not be a rebellious people but a submissive people and a people so eager to submit to you most that we will do even the things that will cause the whole world to hate us. Help us to own what Jesus has said. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Lord, let us not care what the world thinks about what we do. Let us care about what you think about what we do. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.